Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchah is the laws of Torah, Duma the Red Heifer, Perek Achadasar, Chapter 11, <clears throat> Aleph 1, we learned all the details of how to prepare the Red Heifer, how to prepare all the components of the Red Heifer, how to deal with it, but we haven't learned how we actually do the ritual. How does this mixture purify people? How does it work? What do you do? Obviously, you have someone who has been exposed to a human corpse, defiled by death, which is, as we learned earlier, the grandfather of impurity, the highest level of impurity. So how does one undo the state of impurity, of impurity, remove it? So he says, We have a pure person has to take. Three stalks. Shall Azov of Azov. Azov is the biblical word, the Hebrew word. We find Azov in various places. We find Azov used in the very beginning of the journey of the Jewish people as they were about to come out of Egypt. They took an Azov and they applied the blood of the Paschal Sacrifice on the doorpost and the lintel. We find Azov by the red heifer. We find Azov to be used as a tool of application by the purification of the leper. What is Azov? In English, it's a hyssop. H-Y-S-S-O-P, plant. And just to read from the note here, a semi-woody plant, native from the Mediterranean east to Central Asia. It is aromatic with erect, branched stems up to 60 cm, centimeters long, which is about 23 and a half inches. That's how big it grows. And that's the tool the Torah Hashem chooses for this application. The Eidin, they take a bunch, a bunch of three, and they bind it into one group. So you take three of these thingamajigs, and you tie them together into one bunch. Each stalk should have at least one bud. As I used to say when I was a kid, this bud's for you. The table, and he immerses, Roshe, the heads, give Elam of these stalks, of these buds, be made in the mixture of this purification water, Shebekli, which is in the utensil. So this is used as a tool of application. And as will be learned earlier in great detail, he must focus his attention. And he sprinkles using this tool of the bunch of hyssop upon the person who has become impure. Or, it's not always a person. On the utensils that have become impure. When does one do this? The Chumash says, on the third day of his cycle of having become impure. And on the seventh day. It must be during daylight. After sunrise. So we need to know what time sunrise is. You have to wait until sunrise and then you do this sprinkling. What if he did it during the period known as dawn? After the morning star rises, before the sun rises, it's still kosher. It's like many halachas, you're supposed to do it from sunrise, but if need be, you can do it earlier. But never earlier than dawn. The dawn's early light. And here comes another component after they sprinkle this application with this hyssop upon them. On day seven, the guy got sprinkled on day three, he got sprinkled on day seven. Table by Yain, he can immerse in the mikvah as early as that same day. And he has to wait until the sun sets. And he now is pure once the sun sets. Why? Because he had the stuff sprinkled on, he had the water of the red heifer sprinkled upon him on day three. He had it sprinkled upon him on day seven. He immersed in a mikvah on day seven, which again, he could do that as early as day seven, and the sun set. So he's done. He's now pure. What if he immersed the azov, the hyssop, in this water of the red heifer, in this mixture? At night, the immersion was done at night. The hyssop and the sprinkling was done by day. Or he immersed it in the water and sprinkled uh, in the daytime and sprinkled it at night. Has also that application is not kosher. It's unfit. It's disqualified. Furthermore, the water transmits a state of impurity, as the Torah says that whoever works this process becomes impure. Not only does it not purify, it makes impure. As we will explain. And by the way, regarding this mitzvah, we have the famous teaching that King Solomon, wisest of all men, said, "I was able to comprehend. I was able to understand every mitzvah, even the mitzvahs which are without reason. I was able to transcend the fact that these are laws without reason and comprehend the reason even for the mitzvahs without reason. There's one mitzvah I couldn't master. I, I couldn't understand it, and that is this red heifer. What's so perplexing it is mitaher as It purifies those who are defiled, or and it makes impure those who are pure. This is a strange mitzvah. So again, this is so much divine decree 
until the one immerses the Azov into water and sprinkles of it on the third and seventh day after sunrise. And if he did it after dawn, kosher, he's explained, as we already explained. So we know the process. Day three, day seven, immersion in the mikvah, sunsets, and so on. Bays, mishet on Somebody became defiled due to exposure to death. Through a human corpse. And he was hanging around several days and he didn't do anything about it. So now, three, four, five, seven days went by or more. When he comes and he says, Gentlemen, I was defiled by exposure to human corpse. I need purification. They say, When? He says, A week ago. So why can't today be day three? Three days have passed. No. We have to have him start counting now three days. And then we sprinkle this mixture upon him on day three and day seven. Then immerses. On day seven, Umar of Shimshan, the sun sets, <clears throat> because we're not sure he understands all the ins and outs of the laws of purity and impurity, because he's a lay person. What, what, what does a layman know about the laws of purity and impurity? These are complex laws. When does this apply? With a regular guy who comes and he says, I need this ritual sprinkling. Even if he says today is day three for me of my exposure to impurity, we don't believe him. Perhaps he became impure today, and he figured he'll say day three, say three days. Therefore, we have to have him count one, two, three. Because if in fact he became exposed to impurity today, and he just wants to beat the system, then it won't work, because it has to be on day three. Therefore, we have him say, okay, start counting. But the word chaber is used to describe a brother, a friend, a member of the group. Meaning, alluding to a scholar, a Torah scholar, who's a member of the inner group, meaning he knows Torah scholarship. This scholar comes and he says, I need this ritual. They can immediately sprinkle the waters upon him, upon his utensils, immediately, because he knows the ins and outs of the law. Misha, who's all about Shlishi, who's all about Shvi, when someone had the mixture sprinkled upon him on day three, but not on day seven, this could be a problem. Because the Torah mandates two sprinklings, day three and day seven. Misha, Kamayomim, and he waited several days, so now it's day eight, day nine, day ten. The first thing is that any day after seven, he can immerse in a mikvah. Whether daytime or nighttime, because it's after seven. But the sprinkling must be done any time during the day. Which means that the second sprinkling application is not necessary to do only on day seven. You could do it on day ten. And this sprinkling application of day seven can be done, then Kaidim Tfilah, as long as the time has passed, he's now on day eight or nine or ten, whether before his immersion in the mikvah, then Akhar or after. It's independent. But if he immersed in the mikvah the evening of the ninth or the evening of the tenth, you don't go immediately and sprinkle, and sprinkle the seventh day application upon him. But we wait until mañana, we wait until tomorrow, after sunrise. Because the sprinkling must be, as we learned earlier, done during the day. The mikvah immersion does not have to be done during the day. Although it usually was back then. Now the Rambam will deal with an issue. <coughs> what if somebody is impure? due to another cause, on top of his impurity due to exposure to death. And his impurity due to the other cause has not come full term yet. Can he still be cleansed from the exposure to death impurity while still maintaining the other impurity? What's the deal? Says the Rambam Kol HaMetamin Mekabun Anyone who becomes impure due to exposure to death can go through this ritual. Ketzad, specifically, how does it work? Explain it to me. Zobim Vizobis, if somebody has an abnormal flow, whether a male has an abnormal flow or a woman, Nides, or a normal menstrual flow, the eldest or a woman who gives birth, all of these conditions cause one to become impure, they also were exposed to death by human corpse, to, to impurity by human corpse. So they have two forms of impurity. Now, the other forms of impurity, which we just enumerated, Zobim, Zobish, Nidus, Yeldus, none of those require the application of the red heifer ritual. They only require immersion in a mikvah and sunset at the right time. So while they're in a state of impurity, do we still treat the impurity to human corpse independently, and can we purify them while they're in a state of other impurity? The answer is yes, no problem. Or as we say in French, we. We sprinkle upon them on day three and on day seven. They are now pure from the condition of... The impurity due to human death, due to human corpse. Even though they're still impure, due to another source of impurity. That's a separate track. Shanem, as it says, he's a pure person should sprinkle upon an impure person by Yom Ashlishi on the third day. From here we learn, that sprinkling of this ritual helps him, even though he's still impure from a different source. So also we learned earlier that an uncircumcised male, says the Rambam, whether for good cause or for no cause, the fact is he's a male who's uncircumcised, 
He's not excluded from this ritual. Mekabal Hazo, he can receive the sprinkling of the waters of the red heifer and become pure from his exposure to death. Ketan, oral and uncircumcised male, Shenikma, who became impure, Bemeis, due to exposure to human corpse. These all of and these waters were sprinkled upon him, Shlishi Yushvi, on day three and day seven. He is now declared pure from the impurity of a human corpse. Now, he's not circumcised, because this ritual will not circumcise him. It's nothing to do with, the, with, with anything else. Oh, and when he goes through circumcision, if and when he does. Tevel, he then immerses himself, and he can eat holy foods in the evening, because an uncircumcised male cannot eat of the holy foods. So we're learning about different tracks. Dalit for mitzvah is a the optimal way of fulfilling this mitzvah, dealing with this hyssop plant, is to take shleishaklachim, is to use three stalks. And again, we showed the picture earlier of the stalk. Ushiyorov shnayim, at least if only two of the three buds remained, which means that here he tops, that's also okay. He took three and he's left with two. Or even if he took two to begin with, vagod and then he bound them together, kosher is still kosher, because at least he has the hairy top, which can be used as a like a brush of application. What if the buds open and the leaves fall off? I feel then you should be called Even if there's only left a little tiny bit of the hairy stuff, it's okay. Because the remaining hyssop hairy stuff, as long as there's a little bit, it also is okay. Which has three buds. One should separate the three buds from one another because they're all growing on the same stalk. And then he rebinds them. So now he fulfilled the mitzvah binding them. Because there's a mitzvah to make them a group, a bound group. But if it grows three on one, it's not a bound group. So you have to first separate it and then rebind them. Even though the word aguda is not used in the Torah. Still, that's the way he does it. Piske, if he separated them, he did not bind them. He rebound them, he didn't separate them. He did not bind them and not separate, not separate them and not bind them. He said, use them kosher, all of the above is kosher. In other words, we're learning the best way to do it, but not the only way to do it. What if the hyssop is short? It's so short that when one holds it in his hand, it's impossible to dip in the water. Again, we showed a picture of something that's Danny, big, but sometimes it is short. So what do you do if it's short? One can bind it with a string on a weaving needle or the like, and that will hold it. That's going to be like a handle. The table by and immerse it by mine in this mixture of water, or mala, and he can apply it. He can bring it up and hold on to it and sprinkle. He's not sure whether the sprinkling came from the weaving needle, from the string, or from the actual grass, from the actual plant, then it's unfit, because it has to come from the plant. The weaving needle or the string can only be used to help you immerse it. Hey, a mazin, we should not do this application. Not with underdeveloped stalks of hyssop, or with the seed pots, or seed pods of the hyssops, which means a hyssop carries its seed in small pouches that grows at the top of the stalks. So you're going to be using that? That's, that, that doesn't work. What if somebody had underdeveloped stalks used for the sprinkling, and they declare him pure, and he subsequently entered into the holy temple? Is he culpable for the punishment of the cutting off of the soul because his purification was not done properly? He says, but he's not culpable. It's not the best way of doing it, but it's okay. <coughs> How, at what point in time can the hyssop be used for sprinkling? From the time that it begins to bud. <coughs> this hyssop that has been used to make the application of the waters of the red heifer, kosher is also kosher, to purify someone affected by biblical leprosy, which is the next section we're going to be learning about. Which means the fact that it was already used for one mitzvah does not prevent it from being used for the second mitzvah. Any hyssop that also has a different name when you describe it. You say, oh, this is a something hyssop. As the Rambam explains at the conclusion of this law. Apostle is unfit because it has to be just a hyssop hyssop. Only the hyssop plant, which is called hyssop and nothing else, is kosher for this application. And that would be the type of hyssop plant. Which people eat. But species which are called hyssop, but not plain hyssop, but Greek hyssop. Or red hyssop. Or desert hyssop. And so on. Apostle, these are all unfit, because that's not the regular hyssop. What if this hyssop plant comes from an asherah tree, an idolatrous tree? 
can it be used even though it's part of idolatry? Or from a city that was led astray in idolatry, and there we learn the halacha what has to be done to it. Or of an idolatry, or impure truma, all of the above, psula are unfit. But if it's pure, kohen flu, kohen truma, layaz at the beginning, we should not use it. It is, but if it did kosher, then it has performed its function. The closing paragraph, paragraph 7 of this chapter, Azev, shalikhti laitzim. What if a hyssop plant was gathered to be used for kindling, because it is a great source of kindling? And then liquids fell upon it. The halacha is that before a liquid falls upon something, it can never become impure. That is, if it's gathered for food. But if it's not gathered for food, like in this case, it was gathered for kindling, he just wipes off the liquid, and it still can be used for this application of this ritual. Likli, however, if when he gathered it, he gathered it for food. You're going to put it in a salad. You have a hyssop salad. And then liquids fell upon food. That's a problem. Because the halacha is that when liquid falls upon something after it was harvested, if it's food, it becomes mukshar, readied, to receive impurity, and may already not be used. Possible it's unfit, because it became impure for the purpose of sprinkling. Because with regard to this particular law of the application of the red heifer mixture, all liquids and all foods and all utensils are considered impure for this purpose. As we will explain in that section of food and drinks becoming impure, which is upcoming. If he collected this, if he gathered it for this particular ritual, it's like he gathered it for wood, because it's not food. In this case, if liquid fell upon it, he simply wipes it. And he can use it for this ritual. End of chapter 11. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Porah, Aduma, the red heifer. Moving right along, Perek, Shnei Osar, chapter 12. Now, we're learning about the actual application of this ritual. Now, in Jewish law, sometimes, for example, when we have to wash our hands, the water has to flow all over the hand. When we have to immerse in a mikvah, the body has to be totally immersed in a mikvah. But here, the law is radically different. He says in Aleph and one, Odom, a person, Shenitmo, became defiled. Beneath, <coughs> through exposure to human corpse. And we learned earlier that before he enters into the Bet Hamidash, the holy temple, or before he eats of holy foods, he has to have the sprinkling of the waters of the red heifer placed upon him, the Huza Olav, and the water was sprinkled upon him. How much water has to go on how much of his body? So he says, As long as a tiny drop even of this mixture called Meinida comes anywhere on the skin of his body, also he has fulfilled his experience of having the water sprinkled upon him. Even if the sprinkling of the water hit only the tip of his finger. Or the edge of his lip. That's enough. You need one tiny drop of water to come somewhere on the external parts of his body. Avil, however, in Noga if it came and rested upon his tongue, that doesn't count because the tongue is not an external part of the body. The tongue is part of the internal part of the body. Even though with regard to becoming impure, the tongue is considered like any other exposed limb. Kamei should be honored as we explained. Ainon, however, the tongue is not. Kaivorim Shabagoli, like a revealed limb. Le'inyan hazo utzvilo, when it comes to the sprinkling of this mixture, or when it comes to immersion in a mikvah, case in point. When a person immerses today in a mikvah, do they have to open their mouth so the water will go in their tongue? Of course not. Vechein, so also, kli, a utensil. Shenit mabemeis, which became defiled through exposure to human corpse. Vehiz all of so, this mixture of mechatos had to be sprinkled upon this utensil. How much of the utensil needs to get the water on it? The answer is, just a tiny bit is also good. As long as a little bit reached the body of this utensil, of this purification water, also, it is considered as if this utensil accepted, received the sprinkling of these purifying waters, even though we're talking about one drop of water reached one massive utensil. Which is an interesting perspective. And therefore, we now get into the various scenarios. What if Shnei Kalim, what if two utensils? Shnei Kalim, what are two people? The one was sprinkling the water, intended to sprinkle on these two people simultaneously upon these two utensils. Simultaneously, that was the intent. He has this like brush of hyssop, and he goes like this, and he intends to hit them both. But it only sprinkled the mixture of water and the other stuff on one of them. And then the water dripped 
from the first person or utensil. Alasheni upon the second person or utensil. The second one remains impure. Until the sprinkling of the water will come to it from the act of the one who sprinkling, not bouncing off another person or another utensil. That doesn't count. Not from the concentration of water which bounces off another place. He's Alshnei Kalim. What if the person who sprinkles sprinkled on two utensils? And he's not really sure whether the original sprinkling from the Azov went on both of them or on only one of them and then it bounced off and went on the other. Then this sprinkling is considered unfit. Is considered not effective. Why? Because it has to be directly in the sprinkling process, not bouncing off something else. Gimel, an interesting scenario. Machat, what if there's a needle? Which was put upon a shard of earthenware. Shard, needle. He's all of it. And he sprinkled. The sprinkler sprinkled some water upon it. Where did the water hit? Good question. I'm glad you asked. Perhaps it hit the needle. And perhaps it hit the earthenware shard first and then hit the needle. We're not sure. Another case where this sprinkling ritual is not effective. You've got to do it again. It has to originally hit the needle. Now comes an interesting example. You ever see a scissors? Of course you did. How else you get a haircut? A scissors is made of two parts put together by a nail or a screw or a clip. And there are many utensils. There are many vessels which are put together from two separate parts. But now they're one. I guess maybe that's why they call it a pair of scissors. Maybe. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, a scissors is made up of two parts, as are many other utensils. Kalim hamafut solim. What if there are utensils that are multi-part, which are connected to one another with nails, or another form of connection. An example would be scissors, which come apart. Another example is a blade of a plane, which planes wood, or anything similar, which has various components, various parts. Is this considered one utensil? <clears throat> and if it hits one part of the scissors, is the whole scissors pure, or do we have to hit all the parts? Right now they're together, but maybe later we'll take it apart to clean it or what have you. So that's the question. So he says, while a person is working with this utensil, while he's using the scissors, it's considered connected for the purposes of becoming impure, as well as the sprinkling and making it pure, because while he's working with it, it can't be of scissors unless it's together. And now he's working with it, but not at the time of using it for its purpose. It's not considered connected for either purpose, for becoming impure or becoming pure. Okay. Now that Amman spells it out, how does it work? One part became impure during usage of that utensil, the other part also becomes impure. Because while the scissors is acting like a scissors, it's all one. So if one part becomes impure, everything becomes impure. And if it was sprinkled upon with this mechatos, during the time it was used, in other words, somebody was working with the scissors, and the guy came and went like this, he sprinkled, also has and that's fine too, both parts have now been purified, if they're one body. And how does it work where we say they're not considered one, not for the purpose of defilement, and not for the purpose of sprinkling, that if one of them became impure, not at the time of usage, as its purpose of its tool, of the tool, then the other part also did not become defiled. If they both separately became defiled, and he sprinkled only on one part, not while it was being used for its function, he does not purify the other part, even though now they're connected. Now the Rambam qualifies this and says, this is by pure Torah law. However, rabbinically, our sages decreed that for the purposes of becoming defiled, they should be considered connected even though they're not being worked with right now. So that if a scissor is a scissor, and part of the scissor becomes defiled, the whole scissor should become defiled. Why? Because our sages issued this decree in case something happens while it is being used, and the person will say, oh, I saw a great rabbi, it happened to him, and it wasn't considered impure, and he's not going to know to make the distinction between, well, they weren't using it there, and they are using it here, vice versa. And therefore, our sages also instituted him, if an impurity hits one of them, the other part becomes impure, and they also decreed upon them, that it should not be considered connected, for the purpose of sprinkling and making it pure, even during the time of its usage, which biblically is the way to do it, but our sages issued a decree, lest it become confused, 
and the same law would be applied not during its usage for its purpose. However, always in Hiza Alachad Mehem, Alachad Mehem, he sprinkled on one of them. He does not purify the other. Until the water falls on the other part as well. So the Rambam concludes and says, So we have learned. Whenever you hear that it is considered one unit for the purposes of becoming defiled, not considered one unit for the purpose of becoming purified, it can't be biblical, because biblically they follow one another. This would be the rabbinic decree we just described. As we just described, hey, paragraph five. Now we have two utensils which were connected and became one. Earlier we learned about one utensil which had two parts, which sometimes are together, sometimes are apart, let's say when they're cleaned or whatever. Now we're talking about a whole different scenario. Two items, separate items, which were combined and became one. How is that possible? Well, for example, for example, he took two garments, he took two towels, sewed them together, and now you have one big towel. Or took two curtains and sewed them together. That's how you make curtains and sections. You take the curtains, you sew them together, you have a big curtain. So are these considered one or two? What's the difference? The big difference. If a little drop hits one end of this massive curtain, is it considered purified? Or not? Does it have to hit every section? So he says, they are sewn together, this has now become one. They become connected for the purposes of becoming defiled, as well as for the purposes of becoming purified. But the sprinkling. Because now they are like one unit, for example. I know the people on camera can't see this, but we have a massive drape right here. And this drape is sewn together of sections. But the fact is, it's one drape. Once upon a time it was different sections. No, so what? So this has now become one. However, if something is temporarily put together, when a launderer sews things together, once upon a time, the launderers, the people in the uh, laundromats, and the cleaners used to take large garments, sew them together, so they could hold one end and wash a whole bunch of stuff. It was a temporary stitching. And then when they finished, they would rip it. That's called shlal hakeifsin. The sewing of a launderer, which is very temporary. As soon as you're done washing, you unsew it. You rip it. Ba'abeged, or a garment, shoot off a bikalayim, which is sewn with wool and linen. There's wool and linen in one garment by halacha, by Jewish law. Jewish law mandates that we have to separate them. They named them la'atidon, so therefore for all practical purposes, this is waiting to be separated any minute. So because it's about to be separated, it's not considered combined to begin with for the purposes of sprinkling. However, for the purposes of becoming impure, they are considered one. Now the Rambam gives various other examples. So also, hasalim shebekanto, wicker baskets would be joined together so that many baskets could be carried, connected as one. Or, v'hamita sheltarbo, v'keren shokliba, a threshing utensil, or the feet of a bed, there are various interpretations. V'keren shokliba, where are we here? or horns of travelers, people used to take like horn-like utensils which they drank from. V'shalshelas hamaptechais, or a keychain. These are combined Yet they're separate. Hebrew Lutuma. They're considered combined for the purposes of defilement, but not for the purpose of purification. When it comes for purification, you can't take 20 baskets that are together. It has to take every basket. Every key. You can't just take a bunch of keys on a keychain. Every cup, which is like a horn. And every beam from this bed, or every leg from the bed, depending upon the interpretations. Here, the Rambam is going to give an example of the maximum norm for combining things. If somebody combines three blankets of wool, the and six of linen, in the translation, it's, it's backwards here. A shleisha sedinim, or three sheets. A shleimah sedinim, or twelve, he says here, keys, or, or, or uh, rags, handkerchiefs. These are considered full un- units. They are really connected, because that's the norm, and that's the max. But Yosem Nikam, but if it's more than that, for example, more than three of uh, blankets of wool, more than six of linen, and so on. Chibur the tumah v'leilah zoya is considered connected for the purposes of becoming impure, but not for sprinkling. Choluk echad v'talus echad v'kluv kodin echad. What if there is one cloak, one garment, and one kluv kerim, which he's going to explain, is like a lining? Harehin chibur the tumah v'lazoya. You take an outer material, an inner material, and then you put a lining in between. It's considered one garment. It's like you wear a winter garment. Your coat has insulation and it has a lining. I feel like I don't be They were very long and very wide. Kel shehing to any extent. Ezu kluv kerim. What's kluv kerim? Seshnei begodim shemanichin semer gatim bidayim. This is two garments where you put like cotton between them. Metayfrin eisin kachas. You sew them together. Eisin mechalik. You make one garment. We make such for winter. Ches eight. Similar examples. Again, we're interested in knowing whether the particular utensil is one utensil. If it touches one part, is it enough to purify? Is it enough to impurify? That's what all these examples are all about. So moving right along. Sui hamechem. The covering of a samovar of a percolator, a coffee percolator. And back then in the old world, they used to have samovars. It was like, it was an art. They used to take the cover and connect it with a chain. I guess no one should run away with the cover. 
He's Allah Meichem Tarakel. So if somebody sprinkles this purification stuff on the percolator, everything becomes pure. He's Allah Kisui. But if he only sprinkles the cover, like Torah Meichem, she has all the cover is secondary to the percolator. Just by sprinkling the cover, you don't necessarily purify the percolator. But when you sprinkle on the percolator, you necessarily purify the cover as well. Similar example. Azug You have a bell and it's clangor. There's two parts to a bell. There's the bell, the outer part, and then there's the inner part, the clangs. It combines for the purposes of impurity and for the purposes of sprinkling for purity. Why? It's one unit. A bell is a bell. And he's Allah Chavahem, and if he sprinkled only on one of them, they're both pure. It's not a problem. You don't separate the clangor from the bell. Yud, Hatvi, Shetavim Bei Hapishtim, Eishezim Bei Hachavolim. Shleisho Gufa Yeshbei. The Rambam tells us that a spindle upon which flax is spun, or ropes are made, is composed of three parts. There are three parts to this thing. Part one is is the rod upon which this thread is wound. That's called kush. Part two is the copper iron. Look at the top of the rod. Which is called with which one spins and makes threads. Part three is the ball that is in the center of the rod. It's called pika. So these are the three parts. Now the question is, is this one unit or are these three separate units? The first part, the kush, the rod upon which the thread is wound which becomes impure, you should not sprinkle on the pika, which is the third part, or on the kaish, only on the tzineira, which is the middle part. If he sprinkled on one of the three tarako, he purifies all, but if it is used for flax, rather than other things, to begin with, he only needs to sprinkle on one of the three, because they are combined. Next case, what if you have a leather used to cover a cradle, they used to have a baby cradle, they used to have a leather cover so that the baby's schmutz should not cover the cradle itself, but the leather will protect it, and they'll be able to wash off the leather. Like a mattress cover in our, in our times. So this leather cover is connected to the cradle. It's, connected, it's considered one because that leather cover is part of the permanent cradle. But the wooden frame of a bed is not considered connected. Not for the purposes of becoming impure. Not for the purposes of becoming pure. Because the wooden frame, especially in their beds, is separate from the bed. The twelfth and final paragraph of this chapter. All hollow handles of utensils. <coughs> you have a utensil. For example, in our world, you have a knife. And then you have the knife handle. Every knife has a knife handle. And many, many utensils come that way. Or anything similar. The handle is open. It has an opening in it. The metal part of the knife, for example, is inserted in the handle and then they are held together somehow. So again, in our world, is a knife two pieces or is it one piece? It's one piece. It's considered one for the purposes of impurity as well as sprinkling and purity. But there are other kind of handles that are not so one. It's like protruding handles. It's like the handle of a javelin. Where the wood is inserted into the iron shaft. Is not considered one unit for the purposes of purification, only for the purposes of defilement. End of chapter 12. Rambam, Mishnah Torah. The laws of the red heifer. Perik Shlosha Asar, chapter 13. And here we enter into a very interesting subject, a little bit difficult to understand. And that is that although earlier we learned that because of the battle our sages had with the Tzidukim, the Sadducees, they said that when somebody becomes impure due to any other matter other than exposure to death, when they immerse themselves in the mikvah, they have to wait until the sun sets. That's called Erev Shemesh. In Parah Duma, regarding the red heifer, they do not. We learned earlier. And as soon as they immerse in the mikvah, they are considered pure. And because of this running dispute, our sages actually instituted that they used to make the person impure, have him immerse in the mikvah, not wait until sunset in order to prove the point. Wow. Now we're learning a similar theme to that which we learned earlier as well. And I believe the earlier, which is referred to here, is the very beginning of the second chapter. Now we're in chapter 13. That <coughs> On the other end of the spectrum, our sages instituted many extra stringencies when it comes to the purity required for the red heifer. Uh, over, above, and beyond the call of duty. To a point which is wow. And here, this chapter and much of the next chapter deals with these stringencies. And they are amazing. 
The stringency is that a person who is considered <coughs> in a state of ritual purity, even if he immersed himself in a mikvah because he's about to eat holy food in the base Hamikdash, he could be a kohen ready to serve on the altar. You can't get more pure than that. The same person is not considered pure for the purpose of red heifer. Not even to prepare the red heifer, the burning of it. Not even the step of filling the water. Not even the step of mixing the ash and the water. Not even the step of sprinkling. Until he immerses again, only for the sake of this ritual. Called chatos, mechatos, the red heifer. And then and only then will he attain and achieve ritual purity for the purpose of this ritual. Which means, he could be ready to offer on the altar. He could be in the middle of eating the holiest sacrifice. It comes to this, we need an extra step of purity, an extra immersion. But that's not enough. Moving right along. And so also, hakelim, the utensils. Pure as they are, afilu mizrak, even a receptacle, a bowl. Sheba azora, in the temple courtyard. You can't get holier than that. Eneitoyelachatos is not sufficiently pure for the red heifer ritual. Atriyat biluhu l'shemchatos until they immerse it in a mikvah again for the sake of this ritual. Another immersion. You're going to use a bowl or something related to poraduma. Immerse it again in a mikvah. Furthermore, v'chein and as well kol ha'ochalim v'chalamashim any foods and any liquids. Apapishehin teiden even though these foods and liquids are established as being pure because nothing made them impure. Apapishehin teiden even though they are assumed pure. Harihein le'inachatos for the purpose of the ritual of the red heifer. All food and all drink should be considered like food and drink that can transmit ritual impurity. So here we see how far these decrees have gone. Moving right along, Now, I want to just point out for the purposes of understanding this chapter that we're only beginning to study the laws as they are set out in the Rambam of purity and impurity. Remember, we recently began the book called Purity, Sefer Tara. We completed the laws of exposure to corpse, to human corpse. We're now working through the laws of red heifer. There are so many other laws to come which we haven't even touched yet. But here in this chapter, the Rambam is going to bring down law after law that although we will learn in this particular situation, for this particular issue, that this particular experience is pure, for the purpose of red heifer it's impure. And we're going to be learning a lot of stuff we haven't learned yet. So it may sound a little foreign, but we're going to be learning all of that sooner or later as we get to those sections. And paragraph 2 is an example of that. of Any entity, any utensil, any vessel that is fit, any piece of furniture that is fit to lie on or to sit on, mishkav umoshav means something that is made for laying down on like a cot. You know, like in our early childhood center, we have a stack of cots where they unstack the cots and the kids lay down and rest. So you can have 10, 15 cots stacked one on top of the other. Or you can have stacked chairs, like we have right here. Chairs which stack. You can have 10 chairs in a stack. What if someone with a certain particular impurity called zov, which we learned about earlier, the abnormal flow for a male, sits or lays down on those cots or chairs, it's a problem. And we will learn the details of that. We learned some of them, but we didn't get to the purity impurity part. Now let's take a look at anything that's fit to sit on, anything that's fit to lay down on. Even though that object would be considered 100% ritually pure for the purpose of a sacrifice. You can't get pure than that. But for the purpose of this red heifer, it would be considered as if the person with the zov imparted impurity to it until they immerse it again in the mikvah or until they immerse it in the mikvah for the purpose of this experience. And back then they used to immerse cots and beds and chairs and so on. Which means it could have become impure even though we're not aware of any zov having sat on it. And here he brings down an example of a famous Mishnaic author called the Tanna, Yochanan ben Gudgoda. There was a fellow by the name of Yochanan, son of Gudgoda. He maintained ritual purity all of his life, which means even when he did not eat sacrificed food, he maintained ritual purity, even when he had a tuna fish sandwich or sushi. And even his head gear, people used to wear like turbans or whatever, even his head gear was considered impure for the purpose of the sin offering, even though he never became impure. He was meticulous about never becoming impure. But because of these extra steps, everyone's garment is considered impure. Moving right along, similar decrees, any derivative of an impurity. And much earlier, we learned of the stages of impurity. We have impurity, the corpse is called the Abiyavos, the grandfather. The one who touches the corpse is called the Avatuma, and so on and so forth. And he goes to Rishon, Shani, Shlishi, and so on. And they become weaker and weaker as it progresses downward, as a person touches another person who touches another person. 
So any offspring derivatives of impurity, we learned earlier, that as you get into the derivative stage, the impurity weakens, becomes less potent, where it cannot make people or utensils impure, even for the purpose of sacrifice. As we explained in great detail earlier, and here he refers to the laws of Tumas Mace, chapter 5, laws 7 and 8, and I'll just quickly read this to you. This is a great general principle with regard to ritual impurity. This is chapter 5 of the laws of impurities of human corpse. Paragraph 7. Any primary source of ritual impurity imparts ritual impurity to humans, garments, utensils, whether metal implements, utensils that can be purified by immersion, or earthenware containers. Any entity that imparts impurity to a person or kalim when touched is called the primary source of impurity. So that's what can impart to people and to utensils. However, and this is why I'm reading this, any derivative of ritual impurity, a derivative, imparts ritual impurity to food and drinks, but does not impart ritual impurity to a person or to utensils. So we learned this earlier. That because it's down the food chain, so to speak, because it's a derivative, it cannot impart impurity to people or to utensils, even for the purpose of sacrifice. For the purpose of red heifer law, for this ritual, it does impart impurity. Another decree. Therefore, our sages have gone so far as to say that when one is mixing the ashes of the red heifer into the water designated for the red heifer, he should not put on his sandal. He should be sandalless. Shoeless, I think. There's various interpretations. Shema, yiplu mashkin because it's very normal that liquid will fall on a person's shoes. Because if a liquid is going to fall on anything, the shoes is most likely. It sticks out. Venimsa sandal tomei, any liquid will make his sandal impure, and the sandal will make him impure. Shakala mashkin tomei, the gabeachatas. Why? The liquid is not impure. Why would a pure liquid cause a sandal to become impure? The answer is for the purposes of this ritual, all liquids are impure. The Islam is amakadish, meaning Yosef sandal. Then this fellow will become impure because he is connected to his sandal. Venimsa mechatas tomei, and he's going to make the mixture of the waters impure. That's the extent of the decrees. As I said earlier, it's like wild. Dalit for is a whole section of ritual law called Yodayim. The hands, maintaining ritual purity for one's hands, and hands becoming impure. For if someone became defiled, only his hands, <coughs> due to causes that render hands impure, and what makes hands impure? He touched foods or liquids, and those things make hands impure. We're going to learn about that later in Hilchez Shar, Ave Satuma, chapter 8. Although, even though for the purpose of Participating in sacrifices, he's pure, he can go partake in sacrifices. All he needs to do is wash his hands, as we will explain in that set of laws. For our purposes, when one's hands become impure, the person becomes impure. Another stringency. And he needs to have complete body immersion. Not only did both his hands become impure, but even if one of his hands became impure, he is considered as being impure in totality. Totally. He becomes, for the purpose of this experience, a first degree of impurity. Because, as he says here in the note, regarding the purification process involving the red heifer, there is never a concept of a person having a secondary degree, a tertiary degree of impurity, as there is in all other arenas, areas of impurity. Five, kol hato untila, any person who requires ritual immersion, may not tell you, because by biblical law he became impure, requires immersion, may be or even a more stringent rabbinic law impurity, which also requires immersion by the decree of our sages. So someone who is ritually impure, requiring immersion, Metame, that person, defiles as mehachatos, the water used for the mixture of the red heifer. Yes, eparachatos, as well as the ashes used for the mixture of the red heifer. Yes, hamaza, as well as the person designated to sprinkle these ashes. Yes, hamaza mehachatos, bimaga or bimasa. How does it impart impurity if the person touches or carries them? Carrying means, even though he doesn't touch it directly, but he carries it through something else. This person also defiles the hyssop brush, we talked about that plant, which is ready to go. Yes, or water that was filled specifically special water for this purpose, but was not yet mixed with the ashes. Yes, and the empty vessel, which is pure, ready for sin offering. All of the above can be 
defiled by touching Abalei Mamasa, but not by carrying. Someone who is impure, to the extent that he needs immersion in a mikvah, who touches some of the ashes, he disqualifies all of the ashes. Now, I just want to point out here <coughs> that he says the Azov, the hyssop, that has been made fit to contract impurity. Okay. Azov hamuchshar, I translated earlier as ready, it means that it has been made fit, because the hyssop is considered as food, and therefore it does not impart impurity unless it is first moistened by liquid, and there are various other interpretations, because earlier we said it's not compared to food if it's for the purpose of the red heifer and so on. Okay, I just wanted to point out that the word muksha means to be ready. To repeat what we said earlier in 6, involved a main in the chatos, <coughs> for the purpose of the red heifer ritual, we do not count rishon, the first level of impurity, derivative number one, the sheni, or the second level, or shlishi, third level, tertiary level of impurity, as we would enumerate for the purposes of the truma, food, or the kedish, or the holy foods. We learn that there is a progressive order of diminishing impurity that does not apply to the red heifer, kedish, for example. And here's, a, again, this whole chapter is fascinating, but here's a fascinating example. Ten people <coughs> immersed in a mikvah. Because they're going to participate in the ritual of the red heifer, one of these ten became impure through an experience that makes someone impure. Even though that impurity is only a stringency impurity, only relevant to this particular ritual. Again, for example, only his hand became impure, which is a very limited form of impurity. <coughs> Yet, this person whose hand became impure touched his fellow, touched the second guy. And he touched the third guy. Even a hundred which in the regular world of impurity is irrelevant, because it gets weaker and weaker and becomes impotent. For our purposes, all hundred become impure as it relates to the laws of purity for red ever. Wow. So also utensils of any form, which are considered pure for the purpose of red heifer usage. One of these many utensils became impure. Even only the back of it became impure. Something touched the back of it. For sin offering for this ritual. And then this utensil went and touched. And touched the third, and so on and so forth. Up to hundred and more. For our purposes, every one of those hundred and more became impure. Even if they are one hundred. Zion 7, anything that's even fit to contract impurity. Because it would be Midras Hazav, it could in one form or another support a person who's having an impure flow called Zav, which means an article which, are, which could be sat on or laid upon because it could support the Zav. So the very fact that it can support a Zav <coughs> makes it impure for the purposes of the red heifer. Even though for the purposes of utilizing this in a sacrifice, it's not kosher, no problem. If somebody who is ready to go, he's pure, and he can actually engage in the ritual of the sin offering, but he touches this item, which a Zav could have sat on, which a Zav could have laid on, even though he doesn't touch it, he just moves it. If I said touch earlier, I was wrong. Move. Hanida means he just moved it. Nitma <coughs> becomes impure. Even though he doesn't touch it. You can move something without touching it. You could move something by moving something else that touches it. So also someone who is considered pure for the purposes of red heifer. Who moved a person. Who is not pure for the purposes of red heifer. Nitma, the person who moves him, becomes impure. Even though he didn't directly touch him. For example, if you're carrying someone on your shoulders and I carry you, then I'm moving to someone you're carrying as well without touching him. And there are many other such examples. So somebody is pure for the purposes of the red heifer ritual. We're going to get into the heavy details of these examples later. But here he says, if the person moved not only the person who's ready to go and, and participate in this ritual, move not only the person, but his spittle or his urine, even, even though the person is gone, but he moves his saliva or his urine, body, body liquids, Nitmoy becomes impure, even though he didn't touch him, because he moved his body liquids. But if the person touches a utensil that cannot... Support Azov, it's not for sitting or laying down. Does not make one who is considered pure for the ritual of the red heifer unless it touched it. Moving is not enough. Now we get to a utensil that is impure due to exposure to human corpse. Up to now, we were not talking about this severe form of impurity. Now back to the severe form of impurity. Something was impure because it was exposed to human corpse. If somebody who was pronounced pure for the purpose of the red heifer even moved it, Nitma becomes impure. Even though he didn't touch it. So that's another form of impurity called moving. Even though this form of impurity does not 
convey impurity through carrying. Commissioner Biano, as we explained, this is another stringency. Ketzat, for example, and here he brings, excuse the uh, modern expression, a wild example. Mafteach, a key, which is exposed to impurity through human corpse. A key, a key that opens locks. Shayotoli Bedeles, which was suspended in the door. Vesogar Hator, and a person pure and ready to go, closed the door with the key in it. Hail the being that indirectly. He moved the key by moving the door. Nitmo, he becomes impure because he moved the door that has an impure key in it. And so also, in Hasit, if he moved a crawling animal corpse, or semen, which are sources of impurity, this makes him impure, even though he only moved it. He didn't carry it, he didn't touch it. Even though, in general, they do not impart impurity when they're carried. As is explained, this is one of the extra stringencies. Test nine. Someone who has been <coughs> declared pure for the purposes of Red Heifer, who touched utensils that are sitting above the person who is as up. There is an expression for this, and this expression is called madof. Madof means someone who is in a state of zov, where he has <coughs> objects above him. The word madof he brings down is like all the need of a rustling weave, a movement that's not of substance. So we find the expression of madof here, meaning something the zov has over him. Even for the purposes of holy, this is considered pure. He's considered impure for the purposes of sin offering. And so also a utensil which is considered pure <coughs> for the purposes of the red heifer, which touched his madov, <coughs> something above the zov, one of the stringencies we're talking about is it becomes impure for the purposes of the red heifer. Ten, someone who has been declared pure for the purposes of the red heifer, who touched food or liquids, whether these foods or liquids were absolutely pure or whether they were impure makes no difference. A person who's ready to go to serve as an officiant of the red heifer ritual should not touch any food, whether the food is pure or not. <coughs> because all foods, even pure foods, all liquid, even pure liquid, in reference to sin offering, are not considered pure. And therefore, even if he touches the food with his hand, he just simply took a cookie. His entire body becomes defiled. But if he touched it with his foot, or the rest of his body, or moved it with his hand, but he didn't touch it, indirectly moved it, he's still considered pure. So also, if he touches an oven, Mishar came from other utensils, which are not considered pure for the purposes of sin offering ritual, he becomes totally impure. But if he just merely touched it with his foot, it is pure for the purposes of the sin offering ritual as it was. So he has to be careful not to directly touch food or drink. Next case, 11, someone who is considered pure for the purposes of the ritual of sin, of sin offering of Paraduma, the red heifer. The, the literal word of chatos means sin offering. It's a word that is borrowed to describe the red heifer ritual. This person immersed the majority of his body into water that has been filled for the purpose of the red heifer mixture. There was a big barrel of water and he immersed himself in it. It was a hot day. Nitma, he and it becomes impure. The person becomes impure because he immersed in the water that's about to be used to be mixed with the ashes. What's wrong with that? Because this is still water. Anybody who immerses the majority of his body in still water, as compared to living water or mikvah water, nitma is impure, as we will explain in great detail when we get to those laws. And here we're just touching upon the fact that this is an additional stringency. 12, the closing paragraph of chapter 13. Very interesting law. We learned earlier that unless someone is a known Torah scholar, unless someone really knows the ins and outs of halacha, especially the laws of purity and impurity, they have no credibility, because the average farmer has no idea of the complexities of these laws. So there's what we call an Amhoretz. There's what we call a person who occupies himself with earth matters, a farmer, a layman. <clears throat> and then there is a chover, a brother, a scholar. Scholars have credibility to say this is pure, this is not pure. Regular people, simple people, everyday people, don't have credibility. Because the laws are so complex, as we can see. Now comes a law that flips all of that on its face. You'd base when it comes to the laws of purity and impurity of red heifer laws. Every Jew is credible when it comes to testifying and giving statements with regard to the purity of a sin offering, meaning of a red heifer-related object. 
it's even everyday people, even ignorant people. Why would we suddenly believe everybody? Why would we believe every farmer, even though he's not a scholar? Throughout Torah, the law is different. He says, because this is such a strict law, people took it very seriously. These extra observances, which our rabbis enacted, everyone is meticulously careful. It says in the Torah, this is a quote from this section of laws in the beginning of Chukas, for the congregation of Israel in Mishmeres, as a, an observance to guard, from this verse we know, the entire congregation of Israel are fit to guard. Therefore, practically speaking, a regular person, not a scholar, who brought a utensil from his house, even an earthenware utensil, which can never be purified. And he said, this utensil is perfectly pure for the purpose of sin offering ritual, even though he's a simple everyday guy, he's an ignorant man. The object is considered pure because everyone has credibility. On the Kachimba, you can use it for the mixture of ash and water. On Mazinim, you can sprinkle from it upon the person who is impure. The Apapisha basically told me, even though for the purposes of the holy and for the purposes of Truma, of the Kohen food, this would be considered impure because when a non scholar comes and brings a vessel from his house, we can't trust him. Here, we trust him. So also a simple everyday person, an ignorant person who said, I am perfectly pure for the purpose of officiating with this red heifer, participating, or he had the mixture of the red heifer. Mixture. And he said, This mixture is ready to go. It's pure. Namon, he is trustworthy. People took this so seriously that no Jewish person would treat these laws lightly. And because of that, every Jew has 100% credibility. End of chapter 13.